Hello and welcome to According to John. Today we're going to be in episode 22, Traditions of the Flood, with Martin DeHaan, The Days of Noah. Let's get to it. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within, without with pitch. And this is the fashion with which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, third stories shalt thou make it. Genesis six thirteen through 16 Three chapters in the book of Genesis describe the greatest physical catastrophe in the history of humanity, the greatest destruction of human and animal life recorded in all literature. It is not our purpose to try and prove the occurrence of the flood or explain it on the grounds of tradition, geological evidences, or archaeological discoveries. The believer in the Word of God accepts the record of the Bible and needs no additional evidence or proof for the fact of a great flood which once engulfed the earth, although it is true that the traditions and legends of many nations contain records of the great deluge. These traditions of ancient peoples are of interest and bear some resemblance to the record in Genesis. They were handed down possibly from the days of Noah, and though they are not necessary to confirm the Word of God, we mention some of them just as a matter of interest. An Egyptian legend of the flood says that a long time ago, the gods purified the earth by a great flood from which a few shepherds escaped by climbing a high mountain. Indian tradition relates that the great teacher Manu was warned by a fish of a coming flood and was commanded to build a vessel in which to find safety. Manu then fastened a cable from his ship to a horn on the fish's head and thus was towed to the mountains of India where the cable was fastened to a tree and remained there. The Chinese tradition describes a flood as follows. And now the pillars of heaven were broken. The earth shook to its foundation. The sun and the stars disappeared. The earth broke up and its waters within engulfed the earth and overflowed. All these evils arose from man having rebelled against heaven, despising the supreme power of the universe. The Greeks had several different traditions of the flood. One of these says that the God of Zeus was angry and threatened to destroy this earth. Prometheus, who was gifted with prophetic foresight, warned his son Deucalion of the coming flood. Deucalion then constructed an ark which eventually was run aground in Thessaly. There, he and his wife Pyra, the only survivors in the world, repopulated the earth by throwing stones about them. The stones thrown by Deucalion became men, while the stones thrown by Pyra became women, and thus the world was repeopled. In Britain, there's an ancient Druid legend that because of the wickedness of man, the supreme being sent a flood when the waves of the sea lifted themselves up all around the island of Britain. But a patriarch with a select company found refuge in a strong ship and survived the flood and repeopled the earth. Among the American Indians, the tradition of a flood is found in every tribe. Among the 120 tribes in North, Central, and South America, not a tribe exists which does not have a legend of a great deluge in which from three to eight persons were saved and cast upon a high mountain. The Mexican Indians version makes the flood the result of the earth being tipped to one side. All men were turned into fishes except one family who escaped in a ship which stranded on a mountain. Here a hummingbird came to them with a leaf in his beak telling the end of the storm. 
Besides these traditions, there are numerous variations among the various Indian tribes. We might add many other traditions of other nations, but mention one more because of its similarity to the Bible record. The Babylonian tradition, dating back to the 4th century B.C., narrates that a great flood once covered the earth. The king Ardadis was warned by the god Kronos and ordered to build a ship 3,000 feet long and 1,200 feet wide, in which the king, some friends, and a large number of animals with all necessary food passed through the flood. This tradition also relates to sending out of birds which returned to him again, but the third time they did not return. The ship came to rest on mountains of Armenia. However, they were ordered back to Babylonia, but the remains of the ark, so says the legend, still exist in the Corsarinian mountains. The Babylonian tradition goes into great detail concerning the dimensions, floors, rooms, and stories, suggesting that it may be a distorted and corrupted version of the biblical description. The similarity of Babylonian account and the Bible record is thought to be due to the contact of the Babylonians with the Jews of the captivity and some acquaintance with the books of Moses. We might go on at length to relate many other interesting traditions, for it seems that every tribe on earth has handed down the story of the flood. The flood is established as a historical fact, and is not just a myth as some would have us believe. It has left its impress upon all the three branches of humanity which sprang from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The traditions, while interesting, are not necessary to establish the historicity of the flood. Even if there were nothing in all secular history and no geological evidence or archaeological proof of a flood, we would still believe it because God's word says it. The true believer accepts the record of the Bible as truth without any other proof or evidence. Neither do these traditions and legends strengthen our faith in the Word of God. Geologic discoveries and archaeological findings do not confirm the Bible. They have merely discovered that what the Bible has taught all the time. The Bible is to be believed, not proven. One of the subtlest of the enemy's methods to undermine faith in the Bible is to make us seek for proof of God's Word. The Bible is a supernatural revelation and cannot be fully explained, nor does it need to be. As an example, we have the attempts of well-meaning but shallow-minded Christians to prove that there is, or was, a fish with a throat big enough and a stomach spacious enough for a man to survive for three days and three nights, and then be regurgitated in such good health that he could go immediately on a three-day preaching mission. They write sensational articles about finding a stranded whale on a Florida beach which could accommodate a man. Then they come up with the story of a sailor swallowed by a whale and rescued several hours later in a deep coma and with his skin macerated and barely alive. These enthusiastic defenders imagine themselves a one-man army determined to rescue the Bible from disgrace by proving that a man could live in a whale's belly, and they cry out, See, the Bible story of Jonah is true. We have proof of it. It can all be explained on a natural basis. This is not only stupid, but God-dishonoring. Instead of proving the Bible to be true, it is a downgrading of the book instead. The experience of Jonah was a miracle. It is full of the supernatural. Such attempts to explain the supernatural miracles of the Bible on a natural basis are only pious, disguised methods of destroying the word itself. Jonah's sojourn in the whale is not the only thing these would-be defenders of the Bible should explain naturally. They should also explain the stilling of the tempest when Jonah was thrown overboard the vomiting of Jonah on dry land, and the miraculous growth of the gourd. The whole account is supernatural, and any attempt to try to prove it on a natural basis is a futile beating of the air. 
The same is true of the record of the ark. The whole story is supernatural. Man can raise a thousand questions which he cannot answer. How was the ark ventilated with only one window and that one closed? What did they do for light? What did Noah and his family do with the offal and waste and dung of the animals? Why didn't a single animal die during a year of living in such closed quarters? Didn't they bear young during that time? Were there no baby animals born? Try and explain these things. Try to answer those questions. You see, it must be accepted by faith, for there is no other answer than that the whole event was a miraculous supernatural provision of God. How foolish, therefore, the attempts of man to try to prove the natural possibility of the story of the ark. If it is not the inspired record of God's miraculous dealing with his creation, then it becomes a fantastic, ludicrous, incredible, idiotic insult to our intelligence. It is either true or it is not, and faith in the word of God is the only answer. For this reason, all attempts to prove the existence of the ark or to confirm the Bible record by geological evidence or archaeological discoveries are quite unnecessary. Archaeological discoveries are interesting, educating, and enlightening, but are not needed to confirm the record of Scripture. In recent years, a great deal of publicity has been given to the rumor that the remnant of Noah's ark had been reported on one of the mountains in Asia. The large vessel, or what is left of it, was reported to confirm to the description of Noah's Ark. An expedition was organized and an attempt made to reach the top of the mountain on which the Ark was supposed to be resting. World conditions and clouds of war are reported to have put an end to the expedition. Recently, interest has been revived in the report of Noah's Ark and an attempt is being planned to reach it. It is already hailed as most significant find, for it would confirm the Bible record. And one shallow enthusiast blurted, Wouldn't it be wonderful if they found the Ark of Noah? It would prove the Bible to be true. To all of which we say, Piffle and Fooey. The Bible needs no confirmation. My dictionary defines confirm as to ratify or verify. Thank God I do not need the testimony of a heap of rotten logs to verify the Bible to me. What an insult to God that we will not take him at his word, but must have some additional tangible, physical, mental, emotional, or neurotic evidence. The opening verse of the Bible should teach us the lesson. In the beginning, God created. There it is. Take it or leave it. God will not stop to explain, for he expects us to believe it because he says it. It must be by faith. The author of Hebrews says, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Hebrews 11.3 there it is. If we are not willing to accept God's word by faith, there is no other answer. This is true of Noah's ark. Suppose they should find the ark of Noah intact and unmistakably identifiable on the top of the mountain. It would do nothing to my faith. It is a distressing sign of the age that men will not believe what God says just on the strength of it. Thus saith the Lord, I have no quarrel with the study of evidences or the discoveries of science which seem to confirm the Bible or the interesting findings of archaeologists. But while interesting, they are not an aid to faith. The Bible needs no proof, no confirmation. It can stand on its own feet. It needs no crutches or scaffolding to support it. I have been called an extremist. I plead guilty to the charge of being an extremist in the matter of the absolute authority and inspiration of the Scriptures. My sole trust and only hope for eternity is built on the promises of this book, the Bible. It is the only answer to the cry of my heart. Any suggestion that this is not the absolute, unquestionable truth is taking away the very foundation from under our feet. And so we appreciate all the findings of science, 
but our faith is built only on the record of Scripture. With this declaration of our faith, we conclude this introductory chapter on the Ark of Noah. In our coming chapters, we shall limit ourselves entirely to the record as found in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, and we see what God would teach us by this account of the greatest cataclysm in human history. In closing, we would gather up our material thus far. The Word of God must be believed and accepted by faith. It cannot be proven by human wisdom or philosophy. Once we accept it as God's Word, then we understand by faith. Millenniums ago, Zophar said to Patrick Job, Canst thou by searching find out God? Job 11.7 And the answer came, It is as high as heavens, what canst thou do? Job 11.8 Our business is not to prove the truth of God's Word, but to believe it. Until this is done, there is no salvation. God's Word says we are sinners, hopeless and helpless. It says that Christ died for sinners and rose again, and offers his salvation free without price to all who believe. You may argue till doomsday. You may try to understand it till hell swallows you up, but you cannot be saved until you believe it. Hey guys, I hope this has helped you. And if it has, please like, share, follow, subscribe. And understand this, you have no hope of heaven until you believe the word of God. It is either all truth or it's all a lie. We cannot pick and choose and decide what we want to be truth. It is or it isn't. Until next week. God bless.